Welcome to Pierce Podcast. I'm Mike. And this is Orlando. And we're on episode 121. Yeah. Which when is we, super cool. Yeah, yeah, it is cool. It's cool. And and I'm excited about it for two reasons. Well, actually, I'm kind of sad. And I know, you know, this has gone on a little it's bit bittersweet. longer. Huh? It's bittersweet. It's bittersweet because I would say out of all the books, this book, Chris Voss has never split the difference. has probably been one of the most practical ones, yeah. I would say. And... Not only most practical, but one that I probably will reread again. Yeah, and if so, if you're just tuning in and you're you're kind of figuring out what this episode is about, <laughs> this is a level up review. So we uh, review books uh, like what is it once every couple weeks. Uh, mm-hmm. So we've gone through this book for about five weeks or so, five six weeks, something. Five crazy episodes. Like yeah. So um, we are finishing up this book, which again it went on a long time, but we pulled out so many things from it. Actually, Orlando and I were talking before we started recording uh, and we're both like, you know what? This is probably one we're going to just read again on our own just because there's so many things to take out. Um, I mean, we're only scratching the surface with what we're talking about on the show. And in reality, um, you know, each one of these things is very difficult to implement and it takes a lot of practice and time. And in my own life, I've realized if you just read through something one time, you take a couple of nuggets out of it, you're going to, you're going to benefit. You're going to grow. You're going to become a better person. But unless you're actively and intentionally trying to apply things consistently, um, you're only getting a very small percentage of the benefit that you could get. So, um, we're both definitely going to read this again on our own. In fact, for this episode, I feel a little less prepared because I am, uh, I didn't read through the physical copy, which I normally do and, and make highlights. I listened to it on audio because I had some errands last minute I had to run this weekend. Uh, so I listened to it audio and, man, like I'm like, now I'm glad I have this on Audible too, because I can, I'm probably going to listen to it like two or three times over the next year or two, just on like commutes, because there's so many great things to pull out of it here and there. Uh, and I, it kind of keeps you accountable. Like, am I actually applying the the mirroring? Am I actually using these techniques and term and, and tools that I've learned? So is it Chris Voss reading the book? Uh, no, it's not Chris Voss. I don't oh think. man. Okay. I prefer when it's not. Oh, you really? Yeah, usually uh, with these self-help books, a lot of times they do. Sometimes it's good because they they can bring like certain energies. We talked yeah. about like what's his name? Gary Vee? Yeah, maybe Gary Vee is one. <laughs> well, because he brings insight. He goes, he reads the book and then he's kind of like, oh, well, this is what I read. This is what I wrote back then, but this is what I think now. Which which makes it very updated for what, like another month or two? Right? Yeah, yeah so, like, no, it, I get that. It's like I a podcast yeah. like in that sense. But the reason why I prefer it being a professional narrator is yeah. because just because somebody's good at a specific oh, thing no, and they're writing a book it. about it yeah. doesn't mean they're talented at narrating uh, what it is they're talking about. So they might be a great author. Usually even authors aren't authoring the whole thing themselves. They have ghostwriters and people helping them and editing. So um, I, I usually prefer to have a professional narrator. And a lot of times it's because they're they're on a shoestring budget that they do their own narration because it costs a lot of money to get a professional narrator. Interesting. So I don't know. It's just kind of odd. Uh, you guys that watch us on YouTube, you've seen how, uh, you know, never split the difference. Ads, Chris Voss's ads of, is on our YouTube. So obviously... <laughs> Someone, someone, somewhere recognized. Uh, maybe the algorithm just recognized. The algorithm, just yeah. the algorithm. Keywords. I want to feel special. Okay, I want to know that Chris Voss listened uh-huh. to our podcast. Yeah, he listened. And he's and like, said, you know what? I want to purchase ad space on on that YouTube channel. But you know, it's not bad. The masterclass. I might do it in the sense that, and I don't know. There was a deal one time. You pay ninety bucks and you get access to all of them. And I don't mm. know how good they are. I've read reviews. There's one like Timbaland making beats, and then there's Chris Voss on this, and there's one on art. So I don't know. Yeah. Anyways, Whatever Chris Voss, into. if you're listening. We're here if you need somebody to sponsor, you know, we're here for you. Hey, real quick, though, before we move on to this, we should announce our next book. Yeah, let's do it. All right. So our next book. So 
we have have you read this book at all? Um, I have not read the book in its entirety, but I have watched many, many videos and taken many like like interviews from this lady. So I kind of understand the concept, but I haven't actually read the book. So I'm excited. Okay, yeah. I and me too. I've I've just watched people on Insta refer to it or Oh, so yeah, I haven't actually like listened to like interviews from I have, her. I have no idea. Okay. I've like this is what I love. I sometimes I love this, but sometimes it can be bad. But I think on this one it's gonna be a good thing. Uh so it is the five second rule transform your life work and confidence with everyday courage and you know that's gonna be our next book and the author is mel robbins yeah so it's it's gonna be great i mean i've i've actually implemented some of her strategies just from listening to um her on other people's youtube channels and listening to interviews from her uh, and she's got like a very simple basic idea and concept that she puts forward and you know it's one of those things where i think this is going to be one of those books where it's not going to be like groundbreaking new things but like simple things like if you just it like, will be groundbreaking you should listen that's how good it is no what i mean is it's not <laughs> going to be like an academic ad, ad, uh adventure into like intellectual pursuits where people are doing scientific studies and this like this is going to be like basic here's some strategies you can use um so i think it's going to be it, it's going to be a quick easy read that is going to be very impactful I guess is the way I'm. No, I agree. I mean, right away, you, you, I mean, if you just watch one clip on it, you'll understand a lot of the book. But what I like about this is we kind of need a book that it's probably going to only be two weeks. We're going to spend right. on it. Right. Yeah. And then we might have a heavy hitter after that. I don't know. We'll see. Mike and we'll I see. haven't talked about that yet, but we'll see. All right. So anyways, starting, uh, starting with our current book that we're reading right now, Never Split the Difference. We're finishing it up. Uh, last two chapters. And I'd have to say, um, at least chapter nine for me is probably the most like practical for like garage sale, thrift store, estate sale negotiations. Um, and then the last one, uh, chapter 10 is really, is actually a great concept in just overall negotiations. But I'd say like, we've kind of saved the best for last. Right. You know, I agree. And I think, you know, obviously, you know, you had talked about ghostwriters, Chris Voss with Tal Raz. I think that's how you say the other person that wrote the book with him did a great job of it's kind of like, you know, you have a sandwich, right? And this one, it was good. I guess sometimes sandwiches, right? It, you're talking about some people like the bread, some people like the meat, some people like the different parts all throughout the book. It's good, but there's such a good closer to this book. And in comparison to the other books, I felt that the other books, like you got the concept in one chapter and it kind of just went on and on and right. repeated itself. Now, some people have said that this kind of does the same. I, these chapters by themselves, I think, could be their own books. Right. That's how good they are. So I'm ready to delve into these. Let's do it. So chapter nine is Bargain Hard. I like that. And it actually starts out with a really, really um, cool story because it talked about a him wanting to get a forerunner, right? And mm -hmm. I drive a forerunner. And so it's, it's one of those things like when we bought our forerunner, I had no idea like how like sought after this car. So I have an old 99 forerunner and it's one of those cars. Like when we got it, we didn't realize there was like a cult following for it. And when we drive around people all the time, stop and like, Hey, do you love your forerunner? How much did you get it for? Are you ever going to sell it? Like people love this car. So for him, he had this red forerunner that was like his dream car that he wanted. And he found one at one lot and he goes to go purchase it. And he kind of explains how his back and forth went. Um, and, and he had some power and leverage here because he had cash, he had a cash offer, but he knew that this was a sought after car. Lots of people were looking for this color, this model. And the sticker price was, what was it? 36,000. Yep. And he basically comes in and says, I'll give you $30,000 right now. And they come back. No, can't do that. And he uses all the tools he talked about kind of going into this, the, 
the a little bit of silence, the how do you expect me to do that? Right, I have $30,000 cash. And my favorite part of the whole thing is, is each time the, the dealer, I always wonder like when they go back and talk to somebody and come back, I, I always want, just want to say like, bring that guy out here. Like every time you go back to talk to just know, bring him. It's like a boss back in the, yeah. I know. I, I just, totally just bring that guy like, out. Yeah. We'll just, we'll just figure it out really quick. But anyways, each time he comes back and the, the price is getting lower and lower. And, and every time he's holding firm at $30,000, he never budges from $30,000. And finally the guy comes back and he's like, all right, you win. Slides a piece of paper across the table. It even said you win with smiley faces on it. Like, here you go, $32.50. And he's like, okay, thank you. What a great, generous offer. I'm so thankful. I know the car's worth more than that. I can't do it. $30,000. How do you expect me to do more? Right. And so he's like, well, you can finance. And he stuck strong. And finally, here it is $30,000. He walks out with that price. So, I mean, it, he kind of, this is the type of negotiation that we can all relate to, right? As opposed to necessarily like, a hostage situation, <laughs> I right? Yeah. I was like, which one are you going to use? A hostage situation or the hostage situation? Yeah. So, but here's the thing. I read this and even in this story, it answered some of my questions because one of the questions I always had, and I've brought this up on the other episodes was, you know, he always asks, you're supposed to ask, how am I supposed to do that? Mm. And I always felt that that comes off kind of disrespectful mm. or I, I just don't know how to say that in a tone that right. works. And he, he answered it for me in this one. So, you know, the guy comes out and he says, you know, I, the sticker price is $36,000 after all. And he answers, how am I supposed to do that? He says, I ask differentially. And if we ever get Chris Voss on the podcast, I want him to do this stuff on the podcast mm. one day. But then I'm like, okay, I myself, I find that when I ask those kind of questions, I can't frame it in a way where it's doesn't put off the other person. Mm. But then later on, he says... You know, I'm just going to read it real quick. He says, the guy says, I'm sure he said, then pause if he wasn't sure what he meant to say. I'm sure we can figure something out with financing the $36,000. But then he follows up with this, which I thought was great. Chris Voss says, it's a beautiful truck. Really amazing. I can't tell you how much I'd love to have it. It's worth more than I'm offering. I'm sorry. This is really embarrassing. That phrase right there. Yeah. This is really embarrassing. I just can't do that price. And I read that and I go, that is perfect. Because, right, you, you're not coming off like a jerk. You, you're coming off as somebody that wants to make it happen, that you really value what they have, but there's something that's holding you back and you want that person to help you. And I thought, that is so good. Right. And how many times, and I, I say this all the time, one of the worst negotiations I ever see at garage sales or I've been in business meetings is, always the insulting the other person, what they have, this is garbage, this is why I'm offering you such a low price. Instead going, I really want this, but it, I'm sorry to tell you, it's really hard for me, but I just, I, I need you to help me make this happen. Yeah. Wow, yeah. it's so good. Yeah, that's that's good. And, and especially too with that idea of, um, you can do it in a way where you acknowledge that their price is fair. I've, I've mentioned in a previous episode that I started doing Craigslist ad and I've, since the couple of weeks I've done that, I've had several, several sales off of that. And, or I guess the purchases rather. So I've purchased many things off of this Craigslist ad that I've set up. And several times people will message me and they set a really good price. And I think like, man, if I was buying this for me, this is a killer deal, right? Like I almost want to set up some Craigslist ads for things that I want for myself. Cause you can get some really <laughs> great deals. Not necessarily like the, the deal you want for ROI, right? Like if I'm going to flip this, I've got to ship it. I've got to pay the fees. I've got to pay the taxes. I've got to 
let it sit in my inventory and the time it's going to take. When you're thinking all of those things, you have to get items for much, much cheaper than if you're just buying it for yourself, mm -hmm. right? So there's a lot of times when I'm telling people like, hey, I totally understand why you're asking this much because they, they don't always want to give me as much as you know I want to get it for. They don't want to go that low. And I will use those types of phrases, almost like this is embarrassing, but rather, hey, what you're what you're asking is definitely fair. I appreciate that value. I'm sure you can get it if you, you know, hold on. Um, unfortunately, I can't pay you that much. I'm really sorry. I wish I could. Uh, but with my costs, I just can't, um, you know, but if you would like to get rid of it, just let me know. And by doing that, you're not insulting them. You're not saying like, how do you expect me to do that? Like, what do you think it's worth that much? But it's more of like, look, it, you're right. It is worth that much. Uh, but just for me, I I can't do it at that price. How do you expect me to make a profit? And I'll, I'll use those things. I'll say after shipping and fees and I'm going to resell this. And, and so once they see that you're not saying, hey, you're not insulting them, but you're saying, I need you, like you said, to help me make this happen. Otherwise, you're right. You could probably get that and I hope you do. So yeah. good. So good. So if, if anything, that those two pages definitely will automatically help you bolster your negotiation techniques. Yeah. And and, it, and it's true too. When he, he talks about like going into, he's going to explain like three different types of people who bargain. Um, but before he does that, he really explains how difficult bargaining can be. He says, um, here it is the clash for, uh, the clash for cash and an uneasy dance of offers and counters that send most people into a cold sweat. No part of negotiation induces more anxiety and unfocused aggression than bargaining. And even when you have the best laid plans, a lot of us wimp out when we get to the moment of exchanging prices. And it's so true. I'm getting better at this, but even today I was at a swap meet and I was doing some, um, some bargaining with people and you get to a point where sometimes it's almost easy over text messages, but when you're face to face with people, there's a tendency, especially with that risk aversion or uh, risk aversion versus loss aversion, right? Like you don't want to lose. So I might not be getting the price I want, but I don't want to lose the profit that I do see here. And so I kind of wimp out and it's like, okay, I'll, I'll, I'll give you the, this price. We'll kind of meet towards the middle rather than standing firm because it, it does get uncomfortable at times, right? Like really pushing people lower and lower and lower and, and getting to that place. I'm getting better at it. And I realize the more I do that, but it's encouraging to know that this isn't something that unless you're part of a very small few that like thrive off of it. Most people, it's 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 uncomfortable. It's uneasy, even for people who do it often. People at thrift stores, people at swap meets, and so you can use that actually to your advantage. That they're going to be a little uncomfortable too, pushing you. So if you can use the right tools and specifically recognize the three different types of bargainers that there are, uh, it will definitely help. All right. So I, I'm just going to throw this out there. We should have talked about this before we recorded the podcast. So there's three, right? There's the analyst, there is the accommodator, and then there's the assertive. Mm -hmm. What type do you think? Well, I'm going to guess your type. Okay. Okay. And then you guess mine. And then maybe we'll flesh it out that way. All right. Are you okay with that? Let's do that. All right. Who's going to go first though? All right. Well, should we give like a quick overview of what the three are? Like not like in depth, but that way we can kind of explain what. Uh... Well, let's, let's, why don't we just guess? And then as we flesh it out, then we begin to sure. validate it All right. or, or, or say you're wrong. <laughs> Fair enough. Um, I'm I'm actually stuck. I know exactly what I am, what I think I am. Um, I'm stuck between you. I think you're like in between two. I think you're really. I think you're in between accommodator and assertive, in like okay. a good way. Right. I, I think I think you're accommodator in the sense that you have you're very um, personable. You like to talk. You like to keep things going. Um, and then you're also the assertive in that like you're gonna make the deal and you're not gonna like be sidetracked. So like I feel like you bring a mix of those two. Um, I'm not sure which camp you line into more, so I'm interested to think hear what you think you are. 
Oh, and okay, right now, okay, we'll analyze me. So I 100% do believe I am an assertive person. Assertive, all right. And the reason, so one of the, some of the characters, so we'll just jump to assertive real quick. So some of the characteristics he talks about, for them, getting the solution perfect isn't as important as getting it done. Right, and you and I, yep. this is one of our yep. the contention at time, even yep. with the podcast or reselling, whatever it is. That I'm like, let's just get it done. Yeah, we're negotiating a lot of times, even with the podcast. Like, <laughs> what are we gonna do? What kind of posts <laughs> are we gonna do? I don't have time for this. And <laughs> and yeah, you're you're definitely the assertive in that sense for sure. And, and Mike likes things done really well, and that's why we have such an awesome podcast and awesome audio and awesome video and all that. It's because Mike. Because if it was for me, I I don't know what we would have. <laughs> but it's because I'm like, hey, let's get things done. Right. And to me, it's, hey, I'm going to walk away from negotiation and I'm going to win. I mean, that's that's the way I am. Now, the other part he talks about is, you know, he says when you're dealing with the assertive types, it's best to focus on what they have to say, because once they are convinced, you understand them, then and only will they listen for your point of view. Mm. Right. And uh, Mike knows this. Like I like <laughs> when I'm done talking, it's because I have nothing left to say. Yeah. Yep, that's true. <laughs> and so, you know, when you're dealing with somebody that's assertive, that's one of the key things because they will have, there's two, right? Analysis will stop talking because they're thinking they're introverted, right? According to his, mm -hmm. his discussion here. But an assertive person, right? They have nothing left to say. And you, you can tell that right away. Now, why accommodator? Why did I think that maybe yeah. for you? Um, I would say like, I, I for sure thought you, you leaned more towards assertive. I was almost afraid to say that in case you were like, really, you think I'm like, no, no, I'm not saying yeah. you're wrong. No, no, no. I'm sure. just interested. Um, but, but the reason I kind of think accommodator uh, a little bit is you, you're big on like one of the, the elements of an accommodator is wants to remain friends with their counterpart, even if they can't reach an agreement. And hmm. there's a couple of other things too, like, uh, willing to talk, willing to take your time in negotiations in order to like, like build rapport. That's a big part. And you're really big on, Hey, I want to build a connection. I'm willing to like maybe walk away and not get the best deal or walk away and like, Hey, like I paid up on this, but like long-term, I don't want to ruin this friendship. And so the accommodator is a person who's willing to maybe not even come to a deal because they're more concerned about the, the social aspect mm -hmm. of the uh, arrangement than just the financial aspect. And so I don't think you're, you're definitely not a hundred percent accommodator. I definitely think you lean more towards assertive, but I think you have an element of accommodator in you in that you, you're not just numbers. You're not like, Hey, I, I'm, I'm meeting you. You're going to give me this deal. And like, I'm going to get it no matter, even if it costs our friendship or whatever. Um, you don't have that kind of cutthroat. I mean, you're definitely more cutthroat than I am, but I don't think you're, that cutthroat, if that makes sense. No, I agree. I mean, it's funny. I, I laughed when I read this on page 195. He says, also be conscious of excess chit chat. The other, the other two types have no use for it. And if you're sitting across the table from someone like yourself, you'll be prone to interactions where nothing gets done. Yeah. Yeah. You put two accommodators together and they're just, yeah, nothing really necessarily gets done. And what I liked about these three, and we'll talk about analysts um, afterwards, but what do you think I am? <laughs> analyst. Yeah. yeah through and through. That's sure. why. Uh, that's it's almost like rock, paper, scissors though. Like they each have a strength that they can kind of work in a certain situation, but um, one thing I like about what Chris Voss says is, is you, you need to know these so you know how to interact with them. And then you have to realize that you're not just solidly one thing. You can pull strengths from mm -hmm, other things. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that he said was most powerful is 
you've got to be you in a negotiation. Mm-hmm. You, if you are an assertive person, you can start to bring in some accommodation. You can bring in some analyst, but you can't like, I'm going to try and go into this, into this negotiation as if I'm an analyst because you're going to fail. It's going to fall apart because that's not who you are. It's better to strengthen your strengths, according to Chris Voss, than to try and be somebody that you're not. Yeah. And you can and you can read each of these right away. So, you know, with Mike, whenever we have a conversation about stuff, most of the time, Mike will right away say, well, let's look at the, <laughs> the analytics, right? Whether it's or let's look at sales or let's look at the numbers or how many people actually cared about this episode? Well, how many people listened and how many people watched it through on YouTube? So it's kind of interesting because I'm reading this and I'm thinking of every conversation Mike and I have had. And it's always I've always been like, I got this feel from the community that this would be good. And you're like, well, look at the data. <laughs> and so, but you got to understand that when you're negotiating with individuals that are an analyst, did I say that right? Mm-hmm. Analysis or whatever. An analyst. An analyst is that number one, the best way to win them over is with data. And I know that because I, you know, when I was in education, there are some administrators I knew that were just about data and it didn't matter what I said. If I just gave them 10 pages of data, I won. Mm. There are others that were assertive. They didn't care about the data, right? They wanted to see the end result. They wanted to see how we were going to get from point A to point B, right? And that was a very big deal, right? Data aside is how are we going to accomplish this, even if it's not perfect, right? So when you're in negotiation, you know, I would say most of the time I I don't run into a lot of data people mm. when I'm in, I'm out, you know, garage selling or, or at thrift stores. But I would say in the business world when I'm, you know, whether I'm trying to, you know, and I haven't done this in a while, but when I'm trying to broker anything, whether I'm trying to buy a new car or I'm trying to rent something or I'm, and we'll talk about those things later, is that that's when the data matters. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it matter, It does matter. You'd be surprised how many probably analysts you're meeting um, out and about. Because like one thing you said, for instance, is an analyst will spend a couple of weeks preparing for a meeting to have all of the information they can have. So there's no surprises to get the amount of information they can get in five to 10 minutes during a meeting, right? They want to go and prepared having that information. So there's no surprises. They don't want to be caught off guard and um, they don't always make decisions immediately, right? It's like, so they'll be silent either because they're thinking or it's like, okay, like even a yes or no or an open-ended question. It's like, all right, like let's come next time we meet, let's go back over this, right? Like, because they want time to process, flush out all the mm-hmm. details. And I'd be surprised or you would be surprised. I think there's probably a lot of analysts that have already determined and in a lot of ways, you're going to run your business like that. Like, these are the prices I'll pay for these items based off of these conditions. And if you don't have that data in front of you, you're going to negotiate differently, right? So, like, if you're the one doing the purchasing, you're like, okay, like, I'm not 100% sure if I can move on this. Whereas you might go a little bit more on feel, emotions, right? Like, no, I don't want to say emotions, but like, hey, like, I think I could probably list this. There's not a lot of comps, but I'm going to, whereas an analyst, even if they're the seller of the item has probably already done some, okay, this, these types of items sell for this much, this, I'm not going to accept anything less than this. And so they already have that number in their mind, even if they're negotiating well mm. and fluctuating. It's a great point. I mean, it makes me think about, I shut down with analysts mm. <laughs> and it's funny because when Mike and I have conversations, I, sometimes when he shows me data, I'm like, all right, Right. You see me do that. Mm-hmm. I usually I don't say if that, that's right. I might say you're right, which anyways. <laughs> but if you guys have read the previous chapters, you'll know what I'm aiming at with that. But it's true because when when I when I talk with people that are just about numbers, and uh, you know, this is I'm not this is one of my weaknesses. I'm not saying this is a strength in reselling. You need to be about numbers. And I share that and I say that, but I say that because as a as a weakness of mine, I know that's something I need to work into. 
because I always know, you know, and, and we'll talk about this on future episodes of when we focus more on reselling that I know what I need to do well. Mm. Right. I don't know all the details, but I know the overall number. And if, if I got my overall number good, I don't worry about the details, but I may be losing stuff within the details. Right. Right. So how this relates to negotiation is I think you need to push into understanding, this is again, tactical empathy, understanding how the other individual is negotiating, right? Because I, right away, if I go to a garage sale or I go to some kind of negotiation, whether it's salary or whatever, and they start throwing numbers at me, I automatically just start shutting down mm. instead of trying to listen and trying to hear the in-betweens. So I don't know. It was kind of a, it's a, it's a warning for me because I, the way he broke this down, I think it, it's done really well. Yeah. And, and I, I like to, and I don't have, I don't, didn't write down all the exact numbers, but he mentioned that a lot of times to be the, the most successful negotiators are more assertive. However, um, oftentimes the most assertive people have the most failures too. So like, it's, it's not just like assertive is the best way. He kind of says like, it is good, but like in the most successful businesses, only like 12% of the people at the top are assertive, but of the the top top, they're all assertive, right? So like there's that weird dichotomy mm -hmm. of like, you know, what's the right way? And there's not really a right way. And he does argue that you everybody needs to become more assertive in certain elements of of uh negotiating that it's important. But one of the things like kind of going back with that rock, paper, scissors idea, like there's these three different concepts. And if you are a if you're an assertive person and you're talking to an analyst, when they get quiet, you want to fill the space with more talking. So mm -hmm. then instead of them allowing them to process things giving them silence, you now are giving them more frustration, more things to try and process. They're going to shut down. So if you realize you're dealing with an analyst, when there's silence, allow there to be some silence, right? Don't take it as I need to fill this space. Well, vice versa. If you are, if you're an analyst and you, somebody's being very assertive, don't necessarily think that like, Hey, like they're trying to overpower me. It's just kind of their personality. And you got to kind of learn how to deal with that. Same thing. If you're an accommodator, um, you got to cut the chit chat because the assertive people don't want to hear it and the analysts don't want to hear it. And so you need to know your strengths and weaknesses and play to those. And that's a big part of what he says. And and he's got a, uh, I think a website that he mentioned in here to go yeah. to kind of figure out which one you are and then like kind of some specific things to do with those, like how you can kind of learn based off of which of the three you are, uh, what are some tools and strategies that you can use. So good. So good. So now Mike and I will be better friends after reading this chapter. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Hey, take it a punch. All right. The next section I thought was really good because how many times have you had that standoff renegotiating and you just you just got punched in the mouth and you you either are like, OK, I guess this isn't going to happen and you move on to the next deal. Mm -hmm. But he's saying you move into it and it gives right the idea of number one, preparing. Right. Because, you know, and the other thing is. He goes back to the idea of letting the other person give the first price, mm -hmm. no matter what the negotiation. But when he says taking that punch is no matter how bad that first price is, you don't give up. Right. How many times like, can I tell you somebody has thrown out a price and I'm like, you know, I, I think we're too far apart. I, I don't think we can make this deal. And mm -hmm. I walk away. Yep. I've done that many times. Yeah. Right. And after reading this, I'm like, I'm not doing that ever again. Yeah. And actually, I haven't done that the last two times, but that's because of reading this. Right. So. I don't know. What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I like the taking punch part. Um, specifically, you know, that idea that it's one, it's not going to be personal. Um, you're trying to 
get to the know. That's one thing that you got to realize too, is it's okay to get to the know because it gives you information, gives you power. Um, and then, um, yeah, I mean, um, he gives an example. Was this the one? Okay. Of the, like this very specific number going back and forth. Right. So there was a, a, a deal being made where somebody needed a certain amount to do a certain thing. And he was offered really low. He shot really high. And instead of doing this, like in between get to the middle thing, um, he was very consistent coming back and he gave that very round number, right? He says, what do you actually need to make this happen? He says, I need $737 and 50 cents. Right. And so he was able to take the the low offers and basically say like, Hey, I appreciate that. I understand that that's that you're under obligations. Um, because that's part of it too, is part of the taking a punch is there's usually something behind it. It's often not because it's like they don't like the way you look and they hate you and they want to like rip you off, right? It's usually because they're trying to feed their family or they're under constraints or their boss only gives them a certain amount of wiggle room. So you take that and you don't take it personally and then you move and work within that, right? Mm -hmm. And one of the most practical takeaways, it, it reminded me of something I had done years ago not not having read his book again i wish i read this book mm. i think i'd be in a far better place in life if i had read this book i would say even just 2 years ago before i went full time but yeah. uh at the bottom page 199 he talks about you know usually when the other person gives you a price they give you an extreme anchor right and that ex extreme anchor is off putting and you don't know how to react but he gives two phrases right that gives an encouraging tone of voice he says let's put price off to the side for a moment and talk about what would make this a good deal or you could go more obliquely by asking, what else would be you be able to offer to make a good price for me? And I remember when I had, you know, changed positions uh, back, back in the day when I was in education and I had this number in my head. And when I came in, I didn't share the number and they threw out some crazy number. And I remember one of the best questions, I, this was not intentional. It was just, I don't know. I just asked it. I asked, what can we do to make this a better offer? So it seems like you're at a certain number. What can we do? And I, I remember one of the deals I got out of it ended up giving me probably 15% more salary wise, but not in my salary. Mm. Right. So it was 15% less of what I, let's say I got a 15% raise. I ended up getting that money and it was directed towards something else. And man, I won. Right. In the end, I, you know, and so they walked away thinking, hey, we priced them at this. I walked away going, yeah, you might have priced me at this, but ultimately my my uh, cost of living is a lot less because of these huge benefits that I end up gaining from this negotiation. So always think about that. I know we've talked about that before, but when it's when you're talking about salary, I think that's key because sometimes we miss we're thinking just of dollars and cents, but there's a lot of dollars and cents on the perks and the benefits that you may be missing out on by not asking that question. Yeah, like a deferred income or, or, um, you know, whether it's 401k benefits or whether it's other benefits at work or, you know, healthcare, there's different things that people can throw in oftentimes, um, that is, it costs them less. It's easier for them to maneuver around. And so, yeah, so thinking outside the box, um, and, and even with the, the idea of giving a specific number instead of a round number, um, using that as a tool, if you're working on like Hey, I can give you $37 and 26 cents for this thing. And you know, I got like a unopened pack of gum in my car, right? Like offering the extra thing in some ways too. <laughs> oh, and we talked about that on, on an earlier episode, yeah. but is, is that idea of, you know, you're basically saying, this is what I can do. And it shows a certain amount of sincerity. Like, this is what I have. 
What can I throw in? And sometimes you can actually throw in something that's not going to cost you more that they would want. Maybe can we make a trade? Is there something else we can do? But sometimes that thing isn't even necessary to, to for like a good faith measure of, hey, this is this is where we're going to end up being. So can I share one more thing before we move on? Yeah. I thought, okay, the story in there with Farouk about wanting money to be able to fund some kind of event, I think it was at Harvard. Uh-huh. Such a great story. You should read that story if you haven't read that story because I've seen it in action. And again, it's a, this idea of a range, right? We had talked about if you give a range, people usually will go to the bottom of a range, but this is different. This is where the anchor, right? Your anchor is some extreme anchor that you threw out there, right? So Farouk had wanted, he needed $600. They told him no. They said only 500 And then he throws out an extreme anchor and he says, well, how about a thousand, right? Because that's really, I mean, if I want to make this happen, make this good for this alumni event, I need a thousand. And eventually he got them to agree to uh, seven, well, agree to 737.50, right? He used that, like you just said that number. But here's the thing. I've seen this play out. I'll never forget. I, I was sitting with this director of development and uh, we're in a room and, and I had suggested that we needed, uh, I think we needed like 5K for a program or something. And, you know, this this guy, genius, genius guy. He already had rapport. He already had technical empathy. He already had mirrored. He, he already did these things. He knew these people. He goes, Orlando, how much you need? And I'm like, well, you know, I need the 5K. He's like, we, I'll, we'll get that 5K. I'm like, what? So I'm like, all right. Like, I'm just this teacher that's just sitting in a chair. Like, I don't know any of this stuff. I can teach you history all day, but negotiation, not my thing. So he's talking to this, this individual and. And the, the guy's like, well, how much do you need? And he goes, watch this. He goes, uh, I need 15K. 15K would make this really easy. Now, it would have made it really easy, but that wasn't, was needed, needed, right? That would have just made it the most outstanding program ever in the history of mankind. The guy's like, ah, uh, I don't know. So he threw out super extreme anchor and the guy's like, I, I, I don't know. I don't know. Well, he's like, well. Maybe maybe we could work and maybe we could bring in some other donors and, and we'll see. And the guy's like, you know, um, you know, the lowest I can do is mm, 5K. <laughs> and he's like, he's like, but I'll write you some checks, you know, about a month uh, as business gets better. Boom. Just like that extreme anchor went over the top. So <laughs> I remember walking away from that going, this is crazy because you think extreme anchor is so out of probability, but it it that's why it's called the anchor, right? Because it brings it down to a place where you can come to an agreement. And just like that, 5K funded for my program, and it was done. Yeah, and it kind of, or, or limits, I think it would be another good, he calls it the anchor. I think it's almost like bookends, right? Like here's, especially when we talk about the range, even that yeah. is like important is like highest, lowest, and, and, and it sets a point. And so if you are stuck giving... Um, he even said like one good example he gave in this is if you're in a place where they are making you give a number and you have to give the anchor, give it as if it's from somebody else. Like You're not saying I'll give you this much. Right. But like the example was, um, well, if, if you were to go through a major corporation, they would charge you, you well, know, right. $4,000 per person. Yes. Right. So when you do that, you're not saying this is what I'm charging, but you're giving an extreme anchor of somebody else. Like. How much would you would you do for this? Well, you know, if I was if I was so and so, I'd only be able to pay this much. And so you're setting an anchor. You're not even saying it's yours. It's not your price. You're just saying like, I know people buy this for like five dollars each. But I think that's what happened. Then right. okay, now okay, so this was years ago. But now I'm remembering it was like 
yeah, based on what other schools are doing, this is the range of what this costs at other schools. And so, yeah, brought in that third. Wow. When was this book written? <laughs> That's what yeah. I wondered. I wonder if this guy read this book or it's just he's a natural. I think he's just a natural. But anyways, all right. It's good. It's good stuff. All right. Ready to punch back? Sure. All right. So this is the part that I, I was like least impressed with. So this part really? was the the using anger and why questions um, and, and kind of the how to use emotions back almost like in the negative sense. Cause he even says these are short parts. He even says like, these are like last resorts, almost never used. Don't really recommend them very much, but emotions can be used. Like if somebody gives you an offer and you can kind of, if it, if it's genuine anger, you have, you can phrase it and use it in a way that puts them off guard and makes them make a decision quickly. If they could see you, they've made you very angry, but it also can create where you might get the price you're looking for, but it could end up leading to, you're not going to, they can't follow through because they made a promise out of almost like, frustration and he says you can never fake anger because that's going to come off even worse so it's one of those things like ah, i don't really know how applicable how angry i'm going to get in my typical negotiations with people you know? uh, I, th I think he was you know he was talking about anger i think also he's discussing the idea of whatever you need to do to rattle the situation mm. right because ultimately you're trying to catch that other person off guard Make them think about something they haven't thought about. So then you can continue on in negotiation. Now, there was a good reminder in here, though, when he talks about the no neediness, having the ready to walk mindset. Mm -hmm. And, you know, he talks about we've said previously that no deal is better than a bad deal. Oh, my. When I read that, there's so many circumstances. There's one circumstance I can think about right now that I won't share on the podcast because it's still costing me money to this day. But had I understood that. I would not have walked away with a bad deal, right? Mm -hmm. Because I, I want to reiterate this. Compromise to me is a bad word now. Yeah, it is. And maybe I'm wrong. Maybe I'm wrong. But the sense I got from this is I, I'll never forget. And I've, I'll share this one more time because this was a podcast ago. But when I was in this situation where somebody had told me compromise, the way you'll know that things have worked out is if you don't feel good about the deal and the other person doesn't feel good about the deal, that's when you know things worked out. And and. And I believed it. Mm. Hook, line, and sinker, I believed it. And now I go, no, that was so dead wrong. Because I look at the various angles in that negotiation at that time, and I, I could have taken this approach, the ready-to-walk mindset. I mean, I can't tell you how many times I've bought in a car. And, you know, if you know anything about car dealerships, like you leaving the dealership is never supposed to happen. Like that is never supposed to happen. And I can't tell you how many times I've just left the dealership. Like they're like yelling at me from the lot and I'm going to my car like, Hey, come on. You want to come back? Yeah. And I'm like, Nope, I'm going to lunch Yeah, and I'll go to lunch. And then within five minutes, they're calling me while I'm at lunch and going, Hey, I talked to my boss. Maybe we can do this. I'm like, no, you know, and then I take it to the next level. I'm like, actually there's a couple of dealerships around the corner. I want to see what they have and then I'll come back. And then I end up, you know, brokering the better deal. Yeah. When I bought my Subaru, I actually, I'd say I messed up. I mean, it was the car we wanted and it was a good price and a good, like we were getting a good deal on it. Um, and I'm really big. I mean, we've talked about like the, the um, what's it? Dave Ramsey kind of approach stuff. Like you, you can't just ask like, what's my monthly payment? You want to know what the total cost you're going to pay for an item is. Like, you know, you're not just looking for like, can I afford this month to month? Cause that might be the case, but over the long run, you're spending in way more money to do that. So um, I wanted to get the price, the total price, not a monthly price to a certain point. And, um, they, they, they don't like to deal in that 
deal, right? Because to them, they want the long term. They would mm-hmm. rather you pay yeah. a little less per month and it be extended out over a longer period of time. And I couldn't get the price down to where I wanted it to, but it was it was a good monthly payment. It wasn't a bad price for the vehicle. And it was like the only one around that we saw like that. And we were to the point where we went through everything. We had our credit check. We had everything like we were ready to buy this and we we're in the last steps of negotiation. We got them down a little bit and I wanted like another $2,000 off of it. Uh, and they didn't offer it right away. And I was about ready to leave. I was like, well, I mean, I'm, maybe we could just, you know, leave. And they, they suckered me into saying, they suckered me into like, look, they showed me the papers and that's a, a trick that a lot of car dealerships will do. They're circling numbers. Like, look, this is what we paid for it. This is like, we're only going to make $300 on the sale. Honestly, if we were to go any lower, we, 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 we can't even do it. Right. And they convince you like, okay, this is as low as they can go. But I, I can almost guarantee if I just stood up and said, okay, thank you. If, if you can't go to this price here and like circle my number, then I'm out and then start walking away. There's a good chance I could have got that number. Mm-hmm. Right. And worst case, if like I just start walking out and they don't probably can come back the next day and get that number that they originally showed me if that really was their lowest. Mm-hmm. Right. So, um, you know, and part of it goes back to that idea of it is, I mean, for some people who are more assertive, you can you can go for it. But that that negotiation, that back and forth, they're doing that dealership. They're doing negotiations every single day. They're very, very comfortable with it. If you're not used to negotiating with people on that kind of level, I mean, I did this before I became a reseller. It's it's scary. It causes you like you might be like, I'm going to I will walk out. But then it's like, I've got a good deal here. Now you've got the loss mm-hmm. aversion. Like, I don't want to lose this deal. I don't want to lose this car. And they have what the leverage. They have the leverage. Right. And so, yeah, there's a, there's definitely a certain place of being ready to walk away, not being needy. Um, it gives you it gives you leverage because the honest, like one of the things he says in here that I thought was so powerful is who has the leverage in a negotiation? Both parties. And I thought that was what was powerful is if they're negotiating with you, even a hostage, right? If a hostage in a hostage negotiation situation, you think the terrorist has all the leverage, but the reality is they only have one buyer, right? You have leverage too. If you don't give them the money, they don't get what they want, Mm -hmm. right? So both people, if they're willing to talk to you, you have leverage. And so to recognize that and not to fork over your leverage to them is is a crucial thing and being willing to walk away from a bad deal is is a skill that takes it takes some you know getting used to if you're not naturally inclined to being that kind of assertive person Mm -hmm. and the next chapter when we delve into it talks about that because there's some good examples and i have a really bad example from my personal life that i'm going to share because i'm hoping to help others so we'll we'll wait till then but this next part the ackerman is my favorite oh my goodness yeah well yeah because data We wanted to take a quick moment to thank our sponsors for this episode. <laughs> but it's very good. To, like, here's the here's so there's two there's two parts here. For a person like me that's an assertive negotiator, this is gonna this is gonna be hard for me. The reason is I'm gonna have to sit down, write numbers down, right, and have those cons. Like, I I would actually have to have notes on my phone when I'm going to get negotiating. You know yeah. I mean? I mean, that's true. But I mean, if you're, I mean, I was even thinking this, I'm, I'm not, I'm not trying to say it's bad. No. I think it's excellent. It's just going to take a little more work. Yeah. Well, even with that, I was thinking, so we'll explain what the Ackerman is. I think this is probably the, other than the range, I've used the range so many times in this, um, as far as like hard tools you can use. Cause there's a lot of soft tools like mirroring and the voice tone and things. But as far as hard tools go, uh, I think this is probably the most powerful and um, I think there's probably a way you can set up a program on your phone. I would assume like just a Google sheet where you just put in a number on the top, like when you're doing your research, like if you're in a negotiation and it'll instantly give you all the numbers you're looking for. Right. Mm-hmm. And I'll, I'll set that up and I'll send it over to you. 
Um, and I'll show you how easy we'll that would be. Put a link in our below. I don't know. If we're I'll sell do all that. that. <laughs> um, but anyways, here's here is the the Ackerman uh, strategy, and it's based off of a name of a of a guy who implemented it first. So it is set your target price. This is your goal. This is what you're willing to pay. Like this is it. Like this isn't like the max I'm willing to pay. But what's your goal? Okay. Then you set your first offer at sixty five percent of your target price. 65% of your target price is your anchor, right? That creates, that might get them off their guard. Like, wait a minute, that's too low, but that's okay. You come in at 65%. Then you calculate three raises on decreasing increments. So it goes 85%, you go up to 85% of your goal, then to 95% of your goal, and finally 100% of your goal. Uh, it says use lots of empathy, different ways of saying no to get the other side to counter before you increase your offer. So you want to get some them to say no in different ways. And then... Uh, when calculating your final amount, use a precise non-round numbers, like the 37,893 rather than 38,000. It gives you credibility and weight. Um, and then you can always, like he says, throw in like non-monetary items. So let's say you wanted, your goal is $100. My goal is to get this for $100. Come in at 65, right? Just to make this round numbers easy. So 65, all right? They're going to say, no way, that's way too low. All right, 85, right? You've come up quite a bit. And this totally breaks down the whole idea of meeting in the middle, right? So let's say they're like, Well, they no. have to give you an offer before you say the 85. Well, right? yeah, you, you definitely you definitely want to to get them to offer first, to them to say no, to give you their offer. Um, but like, let's say they're like $150, $200. We, there's no way I could do this for 65. And they say, okay, how about, how about 140? And instead of the meeting in the middle, which is what a lot of people mm -hmm, try and do, mm -hmm. it's like, no, how about 85? Okay, so then you go up to your 85%. Then they say no. Then you go up to your 95 and then finally your $100. So you go up to your 100%. 99.32, right? That's how much I can give you. <laughs> and you do this because if you notice, it, it decreases by 50% each time. So your offer, instead of like this meeting in the middle, like you're jumping up, like equal amount each time, I'll give you $20 for it. Uh, okay, how about 40? Okay, how about 80, right? Like you're, you're instead of increasing in big amounts, your, your increase is getting smaller and smaller, which creates the illusion that like I have less and less wiggle room to actually work with. Mm -hmm. Okay, so so it's really simple. If it's three numbers you have to have, you got to have your, your 65%, your 85, your 95, and then your total number. And by doing that, moving in those increments, it shows like, I mean, when you make a 5% jump from $95 to $100, that's a big difference from $65 to $85, right? And so they're going to realize like, hey, he doesn't have a lot of wiggle room. If I'm still up at 140 and he's gone from 95 to 100, that's all there is, right? And so it creates this loss aversion. They're going to move on it. They know you don't have any more wiggle room. And there's comfort in knowing that the number you're trying to reach is your number that you want. Yeah. Right? That was the biggest takeaway for me there is that what this does is it gives you guidance. It gives you structure, right? And so... Even if you're an introverted person, even if you, you don't like conflict, this kind of gives you that structure. Usually structure helps you not have fear because you already know where you're going. And so you're not going, ah, I don't know what I'm doing. I don't know how to handle this. Hey, this Ackerman method is so good. Yeah. Can, can we make a time machine? Like, seriously, this is such good stuff. I would I'd have so much more money in my pocket right now. It really is. I mean, I mean, I, I use something similar. I hadn't read this part yet when I did this, the negotiation that I did a couple of days ago over the phone and it didn't end up working out. But I did notice that like moving up by smaller increments each time, um, it does create, I mean, a sense of urgency isn't the right word, but it does create like clarity. Like this is it. This is all I have to move on. Because yeah, in the beginning, if they throw out a wild number 200, you throw out a wild number 50, then what's the average, right? Like, okay, let's meet in the middle. But if you're like 50, all right. How about 70? All right. How about 80? 
all right, how about, how about 85, right? Like if you're slow, like they're realizing, okay, we are not going to be meeting, you well, know. And you see these bad negotiations all the time on eBay when you get sent offers. Yeah. You'll get the people that'll send you, it's a hundred dollar item. They'll send you a $20 offer. Mm. Then you'll counter offer, like I'll, I'll counter offer maybe five bucks off and then you'll get 20 to one. Mm. Like you're not going to win. Like automatically I'm annoyed by you and automatically I'm not going to, I'll still negotiate, but I'll just anchor it and I'll just say, 85 is my lowest. I really, I'll say it in a nice way. Appreciate the offer. Smiley face emoji. You know, if this doesn't work, unfortunately we can't, you know, work on this or whatever. We can't meet. Sometimes I'll get them to come up like $20, like out of nowhere. Right. Other times they just go away. Yeah. But you know, hey, we've experienced No this. deal is better than a bad deal. Yeah, no, I agree. I agree. I, that makes I think of some, I think of some items I have in this room that I bought because it was like, I was in the process of negotiation. It was like, uh, do I want to let this like, this this item this is a cool item and and I wanted to buy it at at twenty dollars but they're only gonna take forty and I could sell it for like fifty five but like it's a cool item and I've already in my mind made that fifty five dollars and it's like eh, I should have walked away yeah it was a cool item that I found but if I can't get it at a good price walk away yep so good all right any more from this chapter uh, I don't think so all right I I got one more <laughs> all right <laughs> sorry all right so you had mentioned about this rent. Right. This individual who had his rent was going to go up. Right. And it was going to go from, I think, like 1700 something to like 2020. I forget what the number was like 2300. It was going to be a lot. And eventually he got them to agree to. I think it was another crazy number. It was like 1700 or something to that effect. But there's some good things out of here, out of this story. Right. So one thing he says, don't let the rules ruin the flow. Mm-hmm. Right. So don't be so rigid in this negotiation that if they don't follow the rules exactly that you're done or it doesn't mean you can't adapt or be flexible. Now, not saying you give up, not saying that, you know, you make a bad deal, but always be understanding that, you know, it's not very rigid. Well, and specifically, he was talking about the Ackerman method of they didn't come back with the counteroffer before he gave his next number. Correct. Right. And so even with the rules in this book, recognizing that like, there's going to be times that you're going to have to say like, okay, like I did the silent thing and it's not working. Do I just stay silent until they say something? Okay, maybe this, maybe I need to give the next mm-hmm, number, mm-hmm. right? Like there's going to be times when you have to break the rules. But I always even tell, like when I used to teach video to my students or um, uh, even English, right? Like teaching students how to write, they always want to know, like, can I do this thing? Can I do this thing? And they want to do like really creative things. And I always say, look, master the basics, follow my template first. Once you have mastered the basics, then you can be free to break some rules. Mm-hmm. Right. But don't break the rules to start with until you've learned the basics. So I think a good strategy would be to take some of the, the the hard and soft tools that have been taught in this book, follow that like a template and only break from those rules when you recognize like, hey, I understand that that there needs to be some deviance here. I need to be able to move away from this. Um, but don't just do it because they're like, hey, I'm going to, you know, do whatever I want to do because then you're not following the structure at all. So follow the structure whenever possible and only if necessary. And you actually can understand the difference, break those rules. Agreed. Agreed. And the other part, and this was a good reminder to me, you know, he, he knew he had the agent. So once you know that somebody's already working with you, like don't stop there, right? Not until you get to your goal. And he says the agent just needed a little push. So he praised the agent and said no without saying no. And I keep, go back to the other chapters because it's so good. Because like, how many times have I automatically said nope? Mm-hmm. And then that just ends all conversation. Yeah. I'll never forget a meeting with a parent where a parent approached me with some crazy thing he wanted me to follow through on. And I just said, nope. He's like, all right, I'm done. And walked out. Mm-hmm. And I lost. Yeah. 
I mean, I got, I caught some heat for that one. And had I just said no and like, you know, I'm not really sure, but maybe we can come up with something right. like would have been such a better reply, you know? And so he says, and notice how he brilliantly mislabels in order to get the guy to open up. So again, these tactics are still being using because later on, he tells a guy that, you know, that wants to raise the rent. He says, you know, I'm a student. I don't know. It seems like you would rather run the risk of keeping the place unrented. Right. So loss aversion, the idea of he's labeling what this guy is, is thinking. And he's pretty spot on. And eventually this guy gets to the number that he wants. And the funny part, he says, then he started doing fake calculations. It seemed like he was really pushing himself. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> hey, and he gave that number, right? So, like, that's not, I mean, with specific things, like when you're talking about like a $20 deal at a garage sale, that's probably not going to make a difference. But when you're talking about big, big purchases, right? Like, even at a, at a car dealership, if they give you a number and you're just like, mm, can I do it? Yes, no. But instead, if you were to like, all right, hold on, you pull out your phone, you start writing some numbers down, you cross numbers off, and then you give like a very specific number, they're going to think like, okay, you ran all the numbers, of like how much you, you make each month. And you, like, you write down like, so if you can say like, if, if by doing that, that might not even be a bad strategy. Maybe that works at garage sales or not. I don't know. But what I'm noticing is um, kind of the more I'm doing this reselling thing, the more I'm able to make, I'm starting to make better connections, like long-term bigger connections. And that kind of stuff can kind of play a role. So if you're sitting with somebody and it's like, hey, I can maybe make this purchase every month, right? Which is very different from like a one-time purchase. Then you start running some numbers and then you're like, okay, instead of um, $150 a month, and you do the numbers and you're like, I could do $136 a month, right? Like that all of a sudden says like, Hey, I've actually thought about what I can do to make this work. Um, here's, here's the real number. And I think it says something I mean, in the same way as the car dealer pulling some numbers, circling some numbers and showing me on a page. I don't know if all that stuff's made up. Right. And it's like, this is what we paid for the item. This is our expected net profit. Here's the amount we had wiggle room. Uh, you're already not buying these extra add-ons. So our actual money that we make is going to be this. Um, that doesn't even cover commission. Like, right. I, I'm buying into all that stuff. That could all just be made up, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. No, I agree. It's, it's just, it, again, and it, it, it allows for time, right. For it to sink in and, and know. Now, before we move on, I just want to share one last thing for this chapter. He says, under the key lessons, when the pressure is on, you don't rise to the occasion. You fall to your highest level of preparation. And I think it's super important to understand because how many times have you walked into something and you've had to walk away because you weren't ready and you thought you were going to, hey, I'm going to make this happen. I'm good no matter what. And then, no, you weren't. And then that's you, where analysts win. No, I know. I know. Thanks, Mike. So, yeah, but it's true. I myself, I, you know, I'm freely admitted. Like, I am not the best. I mean, I prepare for things really well. I'm not giving myself enough credit. But there are those times and I just push through. And those are the times when I end up losing because I didn't prepare enough. So that's where we're at. All right. Before we move on to the next chapter, let's talk about social real quick. If you haven't been following us on social media, we are on Instagram, Facebook, and TikTok. We are Pure Podcast. On Facebook, we are Pure Cast. Thank you, you guys, for continuing to follow us on Facebook. Hey, I've been trying to be more active <laughs> on Facebook with you guys, uh, and we appreciate all of you. And also, we're on Twitter. Getting a lot of activity on Twitter. 
it's growing. So appreciate you guys on Twitter. If you want to see our lovely mugs and maybe we'll, we'll role play some situations on YouTube one day. And just to clarify, when he says mugs, he's talking about our faces. Yeah, but because we do have a mug. People do like our mugs and maybe one day we'll be able to find a. And now when he's saying mugs, he's talking about actual porcelain mugs. Yes, that's what we're talking We've about. We've got to so. clarify because when you say when people do like our mugs. That's true. That's true. <laughs> now, we do have uh, shirts available. So we have restocked. And if you ever want to buy a shirt and just show us support, there is the link below. Really appreciate that. Uh, it took us a little bit, but we're back inside. Yeah, this is this is a limited quantity. Like, who knows whether this style is going to change, whether we're going to end up getting new, new designs. Like, so if you want the classic, super comfortable, most comfortable T-shirt I've ever worn, Pure Hustle podcast, black and white shirt. You got to get it now because, you know, time is, time is ticking. Okay. Time is ticking. Or if you just want to support us, go for it. And below, there's the link. There's a PayPal link uh, to just say thank you in a monetary way. If, if in any way we've been able to help you out. And thank you all for the continuing donations. It's, you know, things like this are possible by listeners like you. Yeah. All right. And uh, hey, reviews. We get some awesome reviews and about the book study. I mean, the book review. Awesome reviews too. appreciate those. If you ever want to write those up. Uh, we really appreciate those because I got to tell you, of all the podcasts that we've done recently in the level of reviews, this one, I think, is one of the better ones. Yeah. I, mean, I almost want to say the best one, but I think it's one of the better ones. Yeah. I, I think I think overall, um, just the impact it can make in your day to day life. I mean, every single book is going to have a different impact. Yeah, like if you need if you need financial, like richest man, like every single if book. you need to make did, your bed. Yeah. Like, I mean, just like taking personal responsibility, right? Like make your bed is going to be huge. All of these are going to have a huge impact. I think though, like with just like the negotiation aspect, obviously this is a negotiation book. Um, it's really good. And if you haven't picked it up yet, I highly suggest picking it up. Um, it, it is, it's worth the read. Orlando and I are going to reread it. I don't typically reread books. Um, there's only been a handful that I do, um, but I'm going to reread this because I definitely think I've probably implemented like 5% of the stuff in here and I've seen huge Im improvement in my, my net gain. Right. So mm -hmm. I want to implement more of it and see, uh, at what point is it like, all right, this is, this is as much as I'm going to be able to get out of this book. Agreed. So thank you for all the iTunes re reviews. Yeah. All right. Chapter 10, find the black swan. Yeah. Black swan. So I was wondering where we were going with this yep. because he called his group, his company's called the Black Swan Group. Yep. And so it's like, kind of got a cool story. I mean, I'm a, you're more of a history guy than me, but I'm like a, a weird factoid guy. Like I usually know like the origins of words and phrases and things like that. Um, I didn't know the origin of the, like the Black Swan uh, metaphor there, but it, it was kind of a cool story. Yeah. And the story is basically that historically, right? No one believed there was ever a Black Swan until an explorer found one, I think off the coast of Australia. Yeah. So it was like, the idea was, you know, people would say like, something that was impossible was referred mm -hmm. to as the black swan, right? Like, well, that's a black swan or, you know, that would be a black swan. But the idea behind the black swan, once they discovered it, now the, the phrase has kind of changed, at least in, in the way he utilizes it as the unexpected, right? It's the thing that like, maybe all of the signs are there. It's, it's a key piece of information that, that it, people should know and can know and makes all the difference in the world. And he gives some examples, right? Like Pearl Harbor, 9-11, um, other big events that have happened in life. And it's like in the time it was so unexpected. Nobody could have imagined. But then when you look back, it's like, oh, actually there were some signs, right? Like there's things that kind of point to these things. And so the black swan is this thing that's unexpected, but 
not actually impossible. And you've got to find those things because he makes this claim that every person in a negotiation brings three black swans with them, three pieces of information that are crucial to the, the, the negotiation that if you can learn from the other side, you can leverage to your advantage. Yeah. And, you know, the example he gives is this terrible standoff that happened where uh, it was a bank robber, but he was ready to die and he wanted to commit suicide by cops. So mm -hmm. meaning that he wanted, you know, ultimately his goal was for the for the police officers to shoot him dead. And they had missed that crucial piece. Yeah. And it was actually like one of the first instances of this and specifically of like somebody taking people hostage mm -hmm. in a bank. And that they weren't actually wanting money. Like he wasn't demanding money. He wasn't asking for anything. He was breaking all the rules, but they didn't see for what was really happening. They they were under the impression this is a bank robbery. There's demands. This is a regular hostage situation. But it was something very different. Um, and the black swan was this guy was looking to kill himself. Yeah, he's ready to die. I mean, that's all he cared about. Yeah. And and so all of the key signs that they later were able to kind of put together and say, like, hey. All of these things now kind of made sense, like that we we see. Uh, but in the midst of it, they didn't have that. And so the the takeaway from that is, in a negotiation with somebody, you got to find those black swans. What are the things that are really motivating them? What are the things that 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 make a huge difference? And towards the end of this chapter, he gives an example of a person or buying a huge building, and, and we're talking multi millions of dollars here. And over time, in the discussions with the realtor. Um, he was able to, by using open-ended question, by using labeling, he mislabeled something intentionally, or maybe not intentionally, but he ended up mislabeling something. And the guy corrected him and said, well, you know, like our, our, my client is, you know, got some other businesses that aren't doing so well. And so he needs the money. Boom. As soon as they realize, Hey, this person is in a bind, they need money. You've got that black swan. So before in the negotiation, they believed, Hey, this is this is a regular negotiation. They want the most they can get for it. We want the most, the least we can get for it. But in reality, the person, they needed money quickly. They were in a bind. They had to, to, to move on this property. And so knowing that now changes the dy dynamics of, the, of the, the negotiation. So what are those black swans? What are some of the things in a negotiation with somebody that you might need to know that could totally change the dynamics? Yeah, and and I would there's so many instances. I, I I can think of a friend who somebody found his black swan and he went to a car dealership and he was buying a car for the family, but the black swan was that it was a car for his wife that his wife wanted, like and it was a different like it it wasn't a family car. And the moment that the dealership, the, the car dealer knew that that's what it was. It wasn't, he instantly changed his vote, his negotiation from dealing with the husband to dealing with the wife. Mm. And once that happened, it ended everything because happy wife makes happy life. Right. So, so you're saying, so you're saying that the, uh, the, the car dealer was the one that recognized the black swan. And Oh yeah. Because, because what happened is, so my buddy shows up on his own to the dealership. Doesn't, you know, he, he knows, like, you know, you ever see this at a dealership? Don't ever, I mean, this is my rule of thumb, don't ever show favor towards a certain vehicle, mm -hmm. ever. Well, his wife shows up later on the scene, and this is like looking at this car. And my buddy goes, and when she turned and looked at him, he goes, I knew I was done. Because mm. she smiled and looked at the car, and the dealer knew it's over. The guy lost. I mean, he ended up paying, I think, like, Mm, probably 5k more than he should have for the mm. car right but 
that was the black swan. So the dealer knew. So that's that's what I mean by black swan. No one saw that coming, right? You just had a regular guy coming in. Hey, I got to buy a car for my family, blah, blah. You're thinking minivan. You're thinking station wagon, whatever you're thinking. But no, it was uh, it was supposed to be a, some souped up like import car, you mm-hmm. know? So anyway, so what I, what I mean by that is always be able to find those black swans. Because there has been moments where he talks about getting intel from other people mm-hmm. right when you're dealing with people and there have been moments where um i remember one time trying to acquire a property and under not not knowing that that property that was being sold to the location where i was working in at the moment the reason that a person need didn't want well wanted to sell it and this is a black swan that helped prevent a bad deal was that they could get they couldn't get permits for full use of that so it was an awesome deal. But man, not until the ninth hour did we figure out that, okay, this is why this person wants to sell it. And we walked away from the deal, right? So always be ready to look and find those black swans. So let's talk about leverage here a little bit, though. Yep. So what were your thoughts on? There's different kinds of leverages, but I, I got a story where I lost because somebody gained the leverage. But the leverage you talked about before was the leverage like, hey, if there's only one buyer, Right. Even if you think you are at a disadvantage, let's say at a garage sale or at a dealership or whatever it is, you are the only buyer at that moment. You instantly have leverage. And that's something I didn't think about. Right. When somebody says, I want or I need to sell, that automatically gives you leverage. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. No, that's good. And, and the three types of leverage he talks here are uh, positive leverage, negative leverage, and uh, normative leverage. So just to like quickly explain what each one is, positive leverage is the the thing where you can you've got what the person wants right like that idea of like hey i've got you know i i can offer you this thing i can make you happy and you use that positive leverage the negative leverage is the like i'm going to make you suffer if you don't give me what you want right like if you don't like i'm going to cut this i'm not going to you know my landlord is going to do this or my boss is going to take this away they've got this negative leverage over you rather than a positive leverage like hey if we give you this will you do this it's more of like we're going to take this away and so there's the negative leverage which he kind of you know explains got to be very careful with using negative leverage um and then then there's normative leverage which is basically there's norms that people follow uh so if you can recognize the way people normally behave and you see an inconsistency you can point that out in a negotiation to kind of make them either look like a hypocrite if they don't follow the norm. So for example, um, I used to, when I was um, quite a bit younger, I was interested in like, you know, producing like music and stuff like that, like making rap beats and things like that. And so one of the things I realized- our our music video. Yeah. uh, One of the things I realized is it's a very difficult industry to get into. um, And I was never very good at it, but it was like, okay, I can make some like basic beats. Like how much can I sell a beat for, right? And so I'm doing all this research and a lot of the research, it's like, okay, like, I could sell these beats for like $5 a piece um, and make, you know, like some decent money coming in here and there. And like for like a total license, maybe sell for like 50 bucks. And, you know, there's a little bit of money coming in here, uh, but I'm not, it's not like great. But the whole idea, I saw somebody made an argument that stuck with me, which was, now, what are you going to do if you made a beat for, you sell for $5 for limited access and, and $50 for unlimited access. And then Dr. Dre comes and says, I'd like to buy this beat, a beat from you. I know you have this beat. And then it's like, um, ooh, you know hundred thousand dollars right and it's like he's gonna pull the normative card of like no you charge everybody 50 bucks like you, you're not gonna charge me more if your mm-hmm. stuff's worth that much you you ask for that much and so huh. it's the same thing of like in a, a deal like if you recognize they're normally like i was paying attention today i was at a swap meet and i'm listening to the prices a guy was giving to different people for different things 
And so when I came and asked for a price, I'm expecting similar price, right? And I heard how he was negotiating, how far down he was going. And so I did the like, okay, how about this price? And he kind of came up a little higher and I did the, hey, you just sold that guy that for five bucks. Like, come on now, right? And it's like, all right, fine. And so I pulled the normative card. Like, I know that you behave this way. You got to behave that way. So those are the three types, positive leverage, negative leverage, and normative leverage. And the thing with leverage is you may gain it by just paying attention. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, he he had talked about on here, there's this property that they were trying to sell. And then that took a lot of intel because they figured out that that person needed to sell this property because they needed to make, I pay bills on another property or something to that effect. So there's, there's that, but some of it, you know, he talks about here, he's going back to black swans. He says, most people expect that black swans are highly proprietary or closely guarded information. So in that situation it was, but then he says, when in fact the information may seem completely innocuous, your counterpart always has pieces of information whose value they do not understand. And I think it's very important. So I'll, I'll give you an example where I did this poorly. So I, I'm just, you know, I'm super young. I was in my early 20s. Some of you might be like, oh, that's not super young. Yeah, to me, it's super young now. I'm 40. But uh, I remember I got financed at a dealership for a certain amount of money. And man, had I replayed this, I would have played this totally different. I go and the, the you know, the, the car seller goes, hey, so how much you get financed for? I told him the amount. To me, I'm like, whatever, I'm just telling them my limits and I think I'm doing a good thing and and sharing with them, hey, this is what I can work with. I'll never forget years later, my uh, my boss goes, we, we were just talking, he was really good negotiator. He goes, did you really do that, Orlando? Do you understand that guy? I, I go, how, he, he asked me, how much did you pay for that car? And I said, uh, like about $200 over what I was financed for. He's like, exactly. He took every single penny from you because you gave them information that you didn't have highly closely guarded. I mean, not using the same words, but you gave information and you didn't even think about you what you were giving them. It just came up in a random conversation. Now, you're older and you understand things better that that piece of information that you thought wasn't a big deal. Now, again, a lot of you are listening. You're like, Orlando, you're an idiot. Like, that was a big deal. Okay, listen, I get it. All right, I get it. But at that time, I didn't think it was a big deal. So, you never know what random information may be given over the side conversation. He had talked about how reporters record before and after always with their hot mics. And it's true. I can tell you how many times I've gone into a conference room and something that is being said just in jest, joking around the table before the meeting starts. I'm like, wait, now I know what angle to come at at this meeting. Yeah. And that's a big part of what he kind of talks about later is like this idea of listening. He explains that in a in a uh, negotiation, hostage negotiation situation, there's a literally somebody who's listening and then somebody who's listening and replaying what they've heard. Like there's like eight people who just listen and are like going over the stuff over and over because you're going to miss stuff. You miss stuff the first time around. And so that's one benefit of taking time, pausing, reflecting, uh, going back over things is people divulge more information than they tend to. And every bit that they divulge could be a black swan that you can use. If what he says is true and everybody brings three to the table, right? What their actual number is that they're looking for, maybe outside influences like is it bills like when you when I see on a Craigslist ad and and again this isn't like to manipulate people but when you see on a Craigslist ad where someone's like hey like 
just bought a new car, um, need to get rid of this one, no room in the garage, or you know, whatever it is. It's like, I got to get rid of this stuff. Wife wants it out of the house. It's like, okay, now I know that there's a time limit, right? They've given something up. And so even in negotiations, if they don't do that, even asking them like, oh, why are you getting rid of this? Or like, can potentially give you information you need. Um, and then just think about going into that idea of the three different types of leverage. Um, go into negotiations, like thinking of salary increase, aim for positive leverage. Um, negative leverage can be utilized. Uh, just be careful with it. And then normative leverage also is useful. But I just think of those three in a salary negotiation, positive leverage. Here are the things I offer to the company. Here are things extra that I can do. If you give me these responsibilities, here's how I can benefit the company, right? You're showing, here's the positive things I could do for you if we can come to what I want in the agreement. Negative leverage. Um, all right, well, if you don't do this, this is for me, then I can go and leave, right? Like you will lose me as an employee, employee or I will stop. Why don't you take that off my plate then if it's not going to, right? You've got some negative leverage. You got to be careful with that, but it could be useful. And then the normatives of like, no, I know that like after three years, you offer X amount of, of, of vacation time. Um, so why don't we at least offer me that? Why don't you give me what you do for five years? Because I'm, and then so you can start pulling the normative card in those situations. And again, it it's, uncomfortable if that's not you're not used to that right but again like mike said you apply the template and you stay rigid to it and in time things become more comfortable right you, you set that framework now what about the the section about knowing the religion yeah i thought that was good and and specifically when he mentions religion he actually does use examples that involve like actual religion but i think the idea and he even kind of explains is the idea of worldview people have a worldview they have an, an a way they a lens in which they see and interpret things. And if you can recognize that in a person, you can utilize that to your favor. And he gives examples of Christianity uh, where he was able to use somebody was seemed to be like, I, I don't know if I can make this deal. I got to talk to my advisors. And he kind of goes getting the hint that this guy was Christian. And so he used a Christian buzzword of like, man, I, I can tell, I can tell for you, this is an issue of stewardship. Right. And so he recognized that like, this was an important concept for Christians, the idea of like stewarding their money or their responsibilities. Well, and so by doing that, he seemed to connect to the person. The person's like, yes, you get it. You understand. Right. And so, um, Understanding that, whether it's like actual religion, Christianity, Buddhism, whatever it is that, that knowing about somebody that obviously is going to impact their worldview or just understanding somebody's worldview. What are the things? How do they see justice and fairness? How do they interpret things? Like, what is their outlook on stuff? And when you can recognize those things, you can use the right buzzwords because there's buzzwords for everything, right? You can use the right, hey, I'm one of you because he makes a comment that if you can seem to be like similar, that people automatically are going to interact more and better with people who are similar to them. So if you're using the right words, you seem to understand their worldview. He gives like the funny analogy of like two dogs sniffing their each other's butts, right? Like, are you like me? Do you wear the same kind of clothes as me? Do you talk like me? Do you have the same, do you have the same lifestyle as me? Is your worldview like mine, right? And if you can recognize their worldview, can you use it to your advantage either by being like them or recognizing what are the things that make them tick and what motivates them to make the decisions they make. Now, when I was reading this, I was, it's always, I, I know these guys that are fundraisers. And uh, I remember this guy's goal was to raise about a, a, you know, a thousand businesses in different locations throughout the country. And I remember uh, in talking to him, I said, how do you get people to give you that initial amount? Cause it seems like you're getting a big amount, big, you're getting, you know, a nice pledge like right away. I said, do you talk exactly about what your business is or how do you angle it? And I remember he told me that he would approach people and he knew that if certain people are of a certain political range, right? He would say, 
do you really like the direction that this country is going? Right. And he would say that and he knew he hooked them because he knew that that's what they were about. Mm. So his business wasn't necessarily about that issue, but his business could help with that issue. And he knew that was that individual's religion. So it could be a political, it could be, you know, something that deals like with a religious issue. It could be something that deals with the social movement, whatever it is, finding that worldview is key. And this guy was super successful. I, I mean, it was, <laughs> this guy worked magic. So obviously, you know, I've been around people that know how to do this well, but I, you know, it just validated for me because, you know, it's kind of, um, <laughs> throw this out here. Uh, so in Godfather two, <laughs> there's a scene where, um, uh, I forget. I, I don't curly. I think his son, Al Pacino's character, he's in Cuba. And this is going to be a crazy example. He's in Cuba and there's a guy, this is right before the Cuban revolution with Fidel Castro. And the guy goes, Viva la revolution. And like blows himself up. And he goes, and he, and he said, and we know this to be true. He goes, so that he, he basically points out like people, when it comes to something that becomes a religious cause or something that's very dear to them, they are willing to move on things. Mm -hmm. Right. And it's the same scenario here is what he's saying. So not strictly religion, but if it's something that people really care about, man, if you're able to make it happen, it'll definitely help you out. Right. So anyways, that's right. good. That's good. All right. So more we got from here. There's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of interesting scenario. He throws about the mistakes. Right. I, well, did you pick up any, any ideas from the mistakes in here? Um, mistakes. Um, let's see. What are you talking about specifically? Well, well, he <laughs> mistakes he, that you make that you think that they're making. Well, he he talks about like, hey, there are times that maybe there are mistakes that if you can clarify them, you can make good on, right? So sometimes, like a negotiation is going bad, it's it's going bad not because of anything you've done. But maybe there's been the mistake of misinformation, right? So he points out on page uh, 234, he says, the clear point here is that people operating with incomplete information appear crazy to those who have different information, right? So sometimes you might be in a negotiation and somebody gives you a certain price or a certain number and you're like, that is crazy, right? And you're willing, you're not willing to move on with that negotiation, but maybe they don't have all the facts. So I'll break it down to really basic information. So, yeah. And, and specifically this, this section starts and I like, now I get like where this came in. Cause I had to remember like how this idea of mistakes came up in the book. Okay. So oftentimes people will, will say like, I can't work with this person. They're crazy. Right. And the truth is most people aren't crazy, right? Like mm -hmm. one aspect was going back to the religion, what somebody's worldview, but oftentimes people are just, they have mistakes um, when it comes to negotiations or there's something that's causing them to, act in a certain way. So you have to recognize maybe it's not that they're crazy, but there's something else going on here, right? Like one of them, they're ill-informed. They don't actually have the information they need. So they make this unreasonable request. And then after you provide the information they need, um, you could just walk away, right? Like you could say like the, the whole thing, like we talked about at a garage sale, how much you want for this? 40 bucks. And you're like, oh gosh, there's no way that's only worth like, I'd only pay five for it. You just walk away, but maybe they're ill-informed. So you can they're operating under the mistake. You could just say that person's crazy. I'm not dealing with them. Or you could say, Hey, they're just mistaken. Right. Well, and that's the example I was going to give yeah. the really easy examples. You're at a garage sale. Somebody says, I want a hundred bucks for this. And you're like, that's crazy. The easiest way to do it is you pull up comps you've sold on eBay and you go, you know, I see why, you know, this looks valuable to you, but 
you know, realistically, this is what they're selling for on eBay if you want to take a look real quick. Mm-hmm. And and I've used that multiple times and I get the price down and I walk away, you know, with the price that I want. Yep. But it's it's not that they were crazy, is that they were just ill-informed and hence appeared to be crazy. Yeah, I had the same thing happen at a estate sale the other day. A person had like a one of those, were they OBD readers? Like you could tell what's wrong with the car. I think that's how you pronounce it. Anyways, mm-hmm. um, so they wanted, it was new in a in package and they wanted 150 for it. And so I'm looking up and comps are going for like 80 bucks, 70 bucks on these. And I'm like, $150. Like, where'd they even get this number? So I asked how much for it. And they 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 were like, oh, we can maybe go down to like 120. And, and so I had to tell them, like, you know, like they that's that it's not worth that. I, I'll give you 10 for it. Right. And they're like, no, like these sell new on Amazon for X amount. And I'm like, okay, like maybe somebody has it listed. And I did. I showed comps. I said, they actually sell for an eBay this exact one for about $60, right? Like if it's in really good condition and it's new and the package is good. And then they saw that and they're like, okay. And I was able to get them down to like 35, which for me, I did the no deal, right? Like it just wasn't worth it. Like if I could have got it for 10, it would have been worth it at 35. By the time I, I would have not had much profit in it. Right. So it wasn't worth it for me to actually make that deal, but I got them down from 150 to 35 when they were like maybe 120, they were just ill-informed. Right. Mm -hmm. once you inform them, now things start to change. And then the next one he talked about, which I think is another important one, is they're constrained. And basically talked about an individual that was trying to make a deal with Coca-Cola. But in the long run, they found out that they were talking to the wrong guy. Yeah. That he was the key point and then he lost influence. And I think sometimes when people aren't willing to make a deal with you, you got to see if they are the deal maker. Right. And if they're not, it takes some work. But, you know, if you still want that deal to happen, you got to find out who the deal maker is. Mm-hmm. And, it, and it's all the time. I can tell you uh, there are instances when I was trying to get positioned at certain places where I just was talking to the wrong person. So I exhausted all this energy when I should have just been talking to somebody else. Mm. Right. But that's hard to know. Right. That takes some research and that takes some work. And then I like this point about FaceTime. Yes. That's so good. <laughs> because I, I really, really feel that. In our current society, and again, I'm all, you know me, I'm all about social media. I'm all about, well, I, I'm not a fan of texting. Mike knows that. But, you know, we we were so bound by it. But, man, being face-to-face, negotiations are so much better. Yeah, it, better and I mean, I'm sure just different. I've done quite a few deals, like I mentioned. Um, I'm probably going to say a hundred times people are going to get tired of this. But Craigslist ad thing is really, it's 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 changing me in a lot of ways because it's forcing me to negotiate more because mm-hmm. I'm like negotiations are just coming to me at the most random times, right? Like the other day I was at the mall with my wife and I get a message of this like crazy possible good deal. And so me and my wife are looking up comps. Like <laughs> we had no intention of like doing so research right you. then. Thanks. Like this is, you turn the corner. Yeah. Here. So we had no, we had no, like that wasn't our desire at that time was like to be figuring out negotiating with somebody, but it just fell in our lap. So we had to make some, do some negotiation. Um, but um, FaceTime is big because a lot of times when it's happening over text message, one good thing about it is it gives me time. It gives me time to do research to find out what something's really worth. But I'm not able to pick up the cues and the black swans from them that might be useful. Mm-hmm. So one thing that I'm, I am, I just don't like, and I think it's my generation. I don't like calling. I don't like talking on the phone. I'd rather text every single Facts. time, right? I'd rather, I'd rather talk on the phone or, you know, something in person every time than, than have to do phone call or phone calls. Just, I don't like it. I'd rather text. So to me, it's tough because I'm trying to make all these deals when it would be beneficial when we get close on a deal, hey, can I give you a call, right? And actually get that call because a lot of it is coming through 
um, tone of voice, right? And we can maybe make some things happen. It's going to be harder for someone to say no to you in the same way that it's really easy for somebody to like say something really mean on the internet mm -hmm. or even flip somebody off while driving by. It's very different when you're face to face and a phone call isn't face to face, but it's a lot closer than text messages. And so, you know, I, I need to get better at being willing to say like, Hey, can I give you a call? We can maybe work out the rest of this deal. Um, and then, and go from there because yeah, you're going to be able to hear, are they like, Oh, I really can't. Are they like, you know, you could tell they're kind of eager or like what's, what's motivating them and they can hear your voice and you're like, man, I really want to do that. I can't like, I can do 30. Like, can you help me get, get to that price? Like, what can you do? And they could tell as, as instead of just, they read into your text of like, I can only do 30. Right. And you kind of seem harsh. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, phone calls is going to be better than text and face-to-face -face is going to be better than phone calls. Yeah, and the other part I wanted to talk about was if you don't do face-to-face, -face, it's easier for a person to walk away from a deal. Yep. Right. When my experience has been the best deal that I've ever made is face-to-face -face because you over text, you don't come to an agreement and person puts their phone down and it could be done and they could ghost you and that's mm -hmm. it. But when you're face-to-face -face and you really want something, you can apply all these items that are discussed in this book and eventually, hopefully, walk out with that deal, yeah. right? And, you know, I, I I give you experience as an administrator. I can't tell you how many times in my early days of administration, I would just email some parent. And, man, it would, all craziness would break loose because, you know, the better situation would have been to get on the phone or meet with that person because, number one, it cut out a bunch of time because, you know, when you're, when you're emailing and doing all this, you may be losing time because you're not getting to the crux of the matter right away. Right. Where when I'm meeting with somebody, I can, I always said this, whenever somebody walked into my office, we were going to walk away and that person was going to be satisfied with the outcome. Right. I would hash it out. But in the end, there wasn't an opportunity for that person to walk away where an email is like, man, who knows what that person can interpret out of that. Right. So Face-to-face, -face, just old school. Yep, it's good. All right, so we're coming to the end here. And uh, I, re I really like the way he closes things off. He makes a statement uh, towards the end on page 242. He says, if this book accomplishes one thing, I hope it gets you over that fear of conflict and encourages you to navigate with empathy. If you're going to be great at anything, a great negotiation, a great negotiator, a great manager, a great husband, a great wife, you're going to have to do that. And I think that that's one of the biggest takeaways out of all of this, because I look at this negotiation, there's conflict in this negotiation, right? Because you're looking at never splitting the difference. And if you're never going to split the difference, it's going to create conflict, yep. right? Because if you have a compromise, well, you know, you kind of walk away and it's, you don't, you feel uneasy, but there really wasn't a lot of conflict, yep. but to get to a place, it's going to take some work. And, and going back to that idea of conflict, um, and I see you have it highlighted in your book too. Um, it He says here, whether it's in the office or around family dinner, don't avoid honest, clear conflict. It will get you the best car price, the higher salary, and the largest donation. It will also save your marriage, your friendship, and your family. And that's so crucial. We talked multiple times, like negotiation, it's a business thing, but this book in so many ways is also a marriage book and a friend communication book and all of those things because there's going to be conflict. And we often have a tendency to avoid conflict. And if you're not the kind of person that has the natural tendency to avoid conflict, your tendency is to like aggressively go into conflict. And both of those things are going to be 
reasons you're going to fail and things are going to fall apart. So when you can learn to navigate conflict well, negotiate well, you're going to make more money. You're going to negotiate better salaries. You're going to have better relationships with people. And so this really is a communication book. And I would say, you know, if you haven't read it, read it because we only scratched the surface, probably didn't do it justice. Um, and so check it out. I've already applied a bunch of it. Mm -hmm. I'd probably say so the amount of money I've made, the cost of this book versus the amount of money yeah, I've made true, in negotiation true. changes. Um, I, I can't even imagine already. And this is just after just now reading it. So over the course of my life, how much extra money am I going to make because of what I've learned from this book? Um, it, it's, it's an insane investment. Yeah. So super grateful for this book. Definitely a game changer in my life, personal and in business. So never split the difference by Chris Voss. Appreciate that book. With that being said, make sure to be real, be relevant and be reselling. Please. Please.